Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by award-winning author Caitlin Curtis, who's here to share with us about her new book, Living Resistance. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to hear about your new book from you. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, um, so I am an award-winning author. I am a poet. Um, I am a public speaker. Um, I am a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation. And so I write a lot on identity and spirituality and belonging and liminal space, you know, those spaces in between that we don't often talk about. And um, I write for people to feel at home and for us to become sort of these um, fierce truth tellers, but to do it in a way that also um, calls us back to ourselves and to each other in a more connected way, you know, the practice of kinship that we belong to one another. And so that's really at the core of my work. And I am the author of uh, three books. So my, my new book, Living Resistance, is um, brand new, has come out, and I'm so excited to share it with everyone. What inspired you to become an author? I have been writing um, words <laughs> since I was young. Um, whether it was in the form of poetry, I, I would write poetry. I've kept journals since I was probably seven years old. Um, so writing words and processing life in that way has always been just a natural part of who I am. Um, in my teen years to young twenties, I wrote music, I played guitar and I wrote songs and, and, and then at some point it kind of morphed into, um, writing for a blog. I started a blog when my oldest son was born in 2011, um, and it was called stories. And so I began blogging and writing about spirituality and motherhood and again the liminal space of of life and um I just I just needed it I needed to process I needed words again and so words have always been sort of my safe place and so becoming an author felt very natural for me because words had already been <laughs> such a constant sort of friend and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful I get to write and, and do this for my work, but also as something I just really dearly love. What inspired you to write this book? Um, you know, my second book was called Native, and it came out in 2020, uh, right as COVID hit. Um, we were having a lot of difficult conversations in America. We were all um, it was just a really difficult, tense, stressful, painful time. And my book came out right at the height of that. And I had a lot of burnout. Um, it was so wonderful to release it to the world, but it also just felt pretty painful. And, um, and I think after writing Native, which was so much about my identity as a Potawatomi woman, and a lot of it was about, um, you know, American Christianity and the colonization within that and within our country as I have come to experience it and others have come to experience it. It was a really painful book to write. And I think once it came out into the world, I had to ask what, what now, you know, what is next now that I've written this, now that I've sort of come to terms with who I am and what 
my life is meant and what I want it to mean. The next step for me was writing this next book of sort of putting into practice then how do we resist then if we know the status quo of hate or white supremacy or um, oppression, if we know that, that that is a status quo around us, then how do we, how do we just live in a way where we learn to care for ourselves and each other and mother earth in a more embodied way? And, you know, it's not a book that has answers, but it is a book that has stories and ideas and ways that we can embody this. And so I really enjoyed writing this book because it just instilled hope in me and thinking about all over the world, people who have been resisting and practicing these ways of care and solidarity for, for generations that really um, helped me to, to know that I can continue this work and that it matters. And so I, I'm really excited for everyone to read it. How does poetry become part of your books? So I, um, I've never published a full anthology of my poetry. And what I've done instead is sort of insert my poetry into my books. Um, my books are kind of shorter chapters, so almost like essays and storytelling. And because I write about difficult things like identity, white supremacy, colonization, um, I insert poetry into my books as sort of a breath, you know, to allow the reader to stop and poetry just slows you down. It, you know, it causes you to just pause a little bit. And so I, I put poetry in my books to sort of help us take a, take a moment to pause, to breathe in the midst of what can be really difficult reading, what can be, you know, be really heavy. It can feel really heavy. And so poetry is just a way to sort of help the reader, help me to stop and take a moment you know, realign, ground ourselves and what we're doing in this work and then keep going. And so I love putting a poem into a book where no one's expecting it, you know, and I think that that's, that's been a really fun part of writing for me. Would you like to read uh, poems from Living Resistance? Yeah, I'd love to read one. Um, this is from, this poem is from part two of the book, which is called The Communal Realm. And it is, it's right at the beginning of that part of the book. So I'll read it, read it to you. Maybe you don't know strength until you've rested beneath the branches of a magnolia tree, feeling the weight of her regal waxed leaves. Maybe you don't know community until you've watched ants rebuild what was broken by a world much bigger than theirs. Maybe you don't know fortitude until you've noticed geese fly to the furthest border of warmth to protect their children. Maybe you don't know compassion until you place your hands in the dirt and feel the pulse of the earth, her heart and soul welcoming you. Maybe you don't know time until you run your fingers over a river rock, their skin softened by generations of magic. Maybe you don't know yourself until the mirror of the water reminds you of your goodness and brings you home again. You use different realms as a framework in the book. How did the realm of resistance framework come to you? I am, um, you know, in, in our culture, we have something called the medicine wheel, which is a, it's a circle. I'm sure a lot of people have probably seen it in different places and maybe didn't know what it was, but it's a circle with, um, you know, cut into fourths. And each of these four areas might be a different color 
Um, they represent, you know, the four seasons, they represent the four directions, they represent the four, um, kind of times in a person's life, you know, um, going from when we're born to when we become elders and into death. And I wanted, I wanted a cyclical framework, not a linear one, because so often we're taught to process things in linear ways. And I don't think that that's always helpful, especially when it comes to grief or embodiment or resistance. And so I wanted to create a cyclical framework. And so if you see on the front of my book, you'll see this sort of Venn diagram of three circles with that middle overlap. And I call these the realms of resistance. And they're basically just the spaces in our life where we process uh, who we are in different seasons. And so the, the realms are different colors and they represent literal seasons, but they also just represent these aspects of our life. So we have um, the personal realm and that's things like, you know, self-care and embodiment and how our personal healing is a form of resistance. And then we have the communal realm. And that's sort of the time where we think about who we are in community with others. How do we practice solidarity and care and how are we sort of planting seeds into the soil of our life to bear, you know, good fruit later. And then the third realm is the ancestral realm. And it is exactly what I call it. It's the time of connecting with our ancestors and thinking about future generations, thinking about how we will become ancestors one day. And it's kind of placing us in that in-between space in our lifetime of those who came before and those who come after and what it means for us to heal in the lifetime that we have. And then that center realm, I call the integral realm and it's integration, right? It's about the very core of who we are. You know, once we have done so much of the work of embodiment and healing and resisting, how do we let that sink into our souls, into the core of who we are and really become part of our life in every way? So this may be uh, chapters on prayer and on dreaming and on how we embody lifelong resistance, how we acknowledge that this is this is who we are as humans is to practice this kind of care for our entire lives. And I wanted to make it clear that the realms aren't meant to be, we're not meant to move in them in a linear way either. You can be inhabiting more than one realm at the same time. You can be moving from from one realm to the other, you know? And so I wanted it to be just a way for people to kind of picture our life, to picture the different seasons of our life that we find ourselves in. And I hope that it is a helpful framework for the reader as they think about what resistance means in their life. There are stories that you share in the book. Is there a specific story behind this philosophy that you want to share with us? Oh man. Um, you know, I think um, one of the stories that stands out to me in my own journey of resistance is being um willing to talk about embodiment and care and, um, anxiety. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety and being a writer, being an indigenous woman and learning to deal with my own trauma. I wanted to write really honestly about, about that in a way that could connect with other people who maybe struggle with the same things. And so I, um, I share an essay in the book about 
um, a time when I went to a river with my family and we um, were spending some time at this river and I have a fear of water. I have a, a big fear of water. And so it was one of those moments where um, my my partner, Travis, and our, our kids were playing in this water and I just was frozen. I was frozen with fear. And um, I write about how anxiety can be this, this glass box that we um, get trapped in sometimes. And it's really hard to sort of find the solution, to find a way to get, come out of that glass box. And I write about um, getting in a kayak and, and um, kayaking a little bit around this part of the river and how in those moments it sort of brought me home to myself. And I think a lot of us are struggling with disembodiment and what it means to be embodied, especially those of us who have um, multiple layers of trauma that we have dealt with in our lives. And so learning to practice embodiment, asking what that means, I think that um, we maybe don't talk about how important it really is that, you know, connecting to our child selves and healing that relationship or being honest about our trauma, letting the things that that we're constantly thinking about sort of settle into our bodies and, and learning what that healing looks like. I think all of that is um, a really important conversation that we don't always have. So I, I wanted that to be a really big part of this book in hopes that it would help others who struggle to find a safe place to process that. You celebrate worldwide indigenous wisdom in this book. Why was it important for you to point to that? Yeah, I really wanted to um, bring stories of people from all over the world into this book. And that was really important to me because I think um, inter, you know, I, I do a lot of interfaith work, um, talking with others from different faith backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And it's so beautiful to see the ways that we are different and also the ways that we are the same, the ways that our, our common humanity sorts of, sort of holds us to each other. I think that's so beautiful. And so Every time I write a book, I read so many books to write my books. And I really wanted to bring indigenous wisdom from all over the world to this because I think in America, especially, we don't talk about indigenous people very much. But then once we do, it's so centered here um, in the US or centered in Canada. We don't talk about the indigenous people who are all over the world, you know, who have been sort of resisting and fighting for their lives, fighting for the land. And so I, I just wanted to um, kind of pull the focus out a little bit and remind us that when we practice resistance, when we practice kinship and solidarity, we can do it not just with the people that are right next door to us or the people in our own country, but we can practice this really beautiful, worldwide solidarity and learn from indigenous wisdom all over the world. And I wanted to really bring that into this book. You write about connecting to our child selves a lot. And a few minutes ago, you talked about the importance for you personally in doing that. But can you say more about why it's important for us to do that as adults? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think that we um, underestimate the the voices that our child selves still have in us, you know, um, the importance of kind of returning to those child selves. I think a lot of us who grew up in, in traumatizing spaces or in childhoods that had trauma. Um, sometimes I think we blame our child selves for 
not doing enough and not recognizing that they were doing everything that they possibly could to sort of protect us, you know, and that's why we grow up with um, things like trauma responses and different ways that we process the world around us. And part of my journey has been to become more gentle with my child self and to listen to her more and to see what she still has to teach me. I think as adults, we sort of, um, we give up uh, humility for ego. You know, we, um, it, we live in a society that rewards ego. It rewards, um, this version of ourselves that, that can't be vulnerable and, um, connecting with our child self sort of brings back the natural curiosity and humility of what it means to be children. And I think that when we do that, it naturally points us back to the earth, to a relationship with mother earth that is really beautiful and is based in, you know, kinship and reciprocity and humility where we're, we're learning to listen to the creatures around us, where we're learning to, to pay attention to stories that we might not have paid attention to. And I think that brings an immense amount of healing that, that we really need in our lives. Is there another poem or an excerpt from the book you'd like to share with us? Yeah, This is from chapter 18 of the book, and it's called Prayer as Resistance. I'll just read a little snippet of this. Throughout my childhood and adult life, I have found myself at times, especially out on walks, wondering how God or the great mystery or the sacred, as I have begun to change my ideas of who or what they are over time, is doing. In a moment of what I can only describe as protective empathy, I ask God, how are you doing? Really? Because I cannot know what it's like to be aware of what goes on everywhere, all the time. I cannot imagine what it's like to hold galaxies of grief and joy, passion and exhaustion. I cannot imagine what it might be like to be the essence of the beginning and to constantly hold time, whatever time is. So I ask, how are you doing with all this? And I wait for answers in the wind at the treetops when I look up, asking God, Mamogosnan, creator, or the divine how they are seems natural to me. But I've noticed so often that we don't ask one another, or when we do, we don't mean it. Are we allowed to say how we really are? And if we do, can we trust other humans to handle it? I've known some who can, And yet when they ask how I am and really seem to mean it, I am often thrown off guard by their kindness and deep presence. Ironically, in those moments, I don't want to burden them with how I'm really doing. I worry it's too much. This is what we've created for ourselves. Once at a dinner party, I ended up in conversation with a woman who travels around the world for work, but also deeply loves her family in Atlanta. When she asked me questions about myself, I could see in her eyes a hunger to listen to the experiences of another person. I will never forget that evening, how it caught me by surprise, but also how it made me long to be a better listener. Experiences like that one make me keep asking how creator, oh, sorry. Experiences like that one make me keep asking creator how they are doing. And every now and then, these experiences lead me to decide to text a friend or on certain days to pick up the phone and dial their number. I feel surprised when someone on a Zoom call really wants to know how I'm doing. Prayer can be strange and surprising, as our human connections can be. Yet here we are. There's a lot more there, but (laughs) there's a little snippet. (laughs) 
Thank you for that. The integral realm is the last realm mentioned in the book. Mm -hmm. And in that you cover topics such as dreaming and prayer. Can you tell us more about the topics of dreaming and prayer and the integral realm? Yeah. So that, that snippet I just read is, is from the integral realm. It's from, um, that section on prayer and, um, dreaming has always been such an important part of my life, whether it's literal dreams I have at night, I have very vivid, I have a very vivid dream world or just dreams of the future, you know, dreams that I hold for myself or for my family or for our communities or our world. Um, dreaming is so powerful and, you know, prayer is the way that we connect with God or the sacred, you know, it's the way we connect with the divine, with the earth. Um, it's sort of naming the things that we hope for in the world and it's so powerful. And yet, you know, both of these ideas have been colonized or capitalized on in so many ways. And like with many things like resistance itself, when we, um, when we make something into this, a fad or into something that we have to buy, it, it becomes empty. We lose the the beauty of it. And so, um, or if it's forced on us, the way that prayer has been forced on some of us, um, it's really beautiful to try to reclaim those things. So to reclaim prayer as this really fluid thing, this really beautiful organic thing, or to reclaim dreaming as something that we can still do, even when it's hard, even when things are difficult. I, I wanted to end the book with ideas like this um, so that as we continue to resist, you know, the status quo of hate in our world that has always existed, we're also dreaming and we're also praying no matter who we are, what that looks like to us. I don't, I don't want to define these things in too narrow of a way. I want them to be expansive and fluid. And that's my hope for a lot of this book is that people can, you know, weave these ideas into their life in a way that fits who they are and keeps us moving forward together. Throughout the book, you invite us to take a pause, to take a really long view of the work of resistance, and to keep making space for ourselves in this process. Can you talk about how one goes about the work of resistance, this wisdom you give us to keep going with it? Yeah. Well, the when I do speaking events or especially like workshops where it's more intimate, I always remind people that this is lifelong work. You know, this is, we are, we're humans for as long as we have this life and that um, often we get pressured into trying to change things so quickly. You know, we are, we're supposed to read the books and we're supposed to start doing the work before we're really ready to do the work. Um, and it leads to burnout for so many of us, or it leads to this immense amount of amount of shame that we haven't done enough or that we have to do everything. And I think that in a lot of ways that has done us a lot of harm, um, communally and individually. And so I write, um, I write about ritual in this book and I encourage people to practice ritual. You know, I think things like poetry, things like ritual, even prayer, like I just talked about, these things all help us sort of slow down and 
and expand our gaze and look inward and check in on check in on how we are doing in the process. And I think that it's important for us to continue to take off um, some of that pressure of we have to fix this now. We have to have answers now because we sometimes get stuck there or we burn out so quickly that we're not able to do really sustainable work, if that makes sense. And so I wanted to um, hold room, hold room for people as they read this book to really lean into what it might mean for their life. Because, you know, we need to change things on the macro level, you know, on the institutional level, of course, but there's also so much change that can happen on the micro level, you know, in our, in our personal lives at the dinner table um, with friends, with family, there's so much that we can rewire in ourselves. And that has ripple effects out into the world. And I want to remind people of that as they do this work. Some books are meant to be sort of devoured whole. In this book, you encourage us to take our time to come back to sections, to pause uh, in between readings of the book. It's, It's a companion book to take with us on the journey of resistance. Can you talk about that idea? Yeah, I love how you framed that. And that really was my hope for this book. Um, I want my books to be, you know, a companion and a guide on the journey. And also not to be, you know, a book of all the answers, but to be um, something that can just be alongside us, be alongside the reader. And um at the beginning of the book, I, I put a line in that says, you are a human being, you are always arriving. And so I encourage the reader to speak that to themselves. I am a human being. I am always arriving. And throughout the book, I sort of remind them, do you need to go back to the introduction again? Do you need to go back and read that line again? Um, do you need to go back and remind yourself that you are human and that you don't have to have fully arrived yet (laughs) that there's still so much to learn. And, um, I think a lot of my books do have so much in them that it would be hard to, to read them quickly. I think there are books like that for me where I just need a little bit at a time because it takes me a while to process, you know? And I think that some of the things I write about in this book are going to be the same way for readers. And I really encourage people, you know, read it with a book club where you're, pacing yourself or read it, um, in spaces where you can take your time with it. I think that that's a really beautiful idea and it, it makes books into something more than just books. You know, it, it it feels like I get to be a part of people's lives. And that really means a lot to me as a writer. That's something that, uh, matters to me is, is kind of being able to come alongside people with my words and my stories. You mentioned earlier about the pressures of the world to respond quickly, to complete a task, to feel like it's done. Do you feel that contributes to anxiety and burnout? Absolutely. <laughs> I think um, I talk about this a lot in speaking events, especially during Q&As. I think that in America, we we want to kind of put a Band-Aid onto our wounds and and hope that it heals, but we're not we're not talking about how the wound got there in the first place. I think with indigenous history, that feels very real to me that we, we aren't willing to go all the way back and talk about who we are as a nation or how we got here. Um, But we want to sort of slap band-aids onto these, 
these really big wounds and try to just kind of get them to go away without really healing them. And I think that that's um, what happens a lot with us as people is we see a problem, a very real problem, but that problem could have existed for centuries, for generations. And we want to read the right book or we want to attend the right conference or post on social media. We, we want to do it. We want to be part of healing, but putting that quick bandaid, that quick fix onto a wound that is deeper, um, isn't going to help us heal. And so I'm hoping that, that in my book and in my work, it helps people sort of reframe that and again, slow down. And I understand what the slowing down, it can feel dangerous because if we slow down too much, are we um, never going to change things. Right. And so it's not to stop the momentum, but it is to slow down enough that we're not just a whole bunch of, you know, really anxious burnout people, but that we are able to sustain the work and do it in a way that teaches us how to care for ourselves and how to care for each other and how to care for the earth and to care about what solidarity might really mean in our, in our lives. And I hope that that I hope that that's possible in my books and in so many other beautiful books that are coming out lately that are trying to sort of name this same problem and, and this same message. In the books, you take us inside your personal life and show us what your morning is like, that you intentionally have a slower morning. You spend time with your coffee, with your partner, and you make time for music. Can you talk about how starting your morning off that way is important for you taking care of yourself so you can do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my mornings are so important to me and have become such, um, an integral space in my life. Um, I think that I really started this, my partner and I have, have always like paused to have coffee together. That's always been a part of our life, but, um, I also recognized that I needed even more space than that, that I needed to, you know, have a good fiction book to read or have, Um, music in the mornings to kind of slow things down even more. And so, um, yeah, we, we, you know, take the kids to school, we come back and I'll either have time by myself or if my partner's home, we'll have coffee together. And then I read for a bit, I play piano. And if I didn't do that and I jumped straight into the work, I, I would burn out. There's a, um, for me, Um, the struggle with even the excitement of work is that it can turn into anxiety easily. And so trying to pace myself and, and I know for a lot of people, there's a lot of tension in that, that it, it wouldn't make sense. But for a lot of us, if we are able to sort of ground ourselves first for the work and then pace ourselves along the way, we can do a lot more. We can, um, we can sustain ourselves in a better way and beginning with care and with those sort of rituals in the morning or, or in the middle of the day, or even in the evening, having these things that ground us, you know, just back in our bodies or help our minds sort of slow down is so important. It's so important um, for all of us to have spaces where we um, can get out of our heads a little bit, you know, and, and, practice healing and practice embodiment. And that's become such an important part of my life that um, I hope to be able to continue um, to sustain for a long time. In the book and earlier in our time together today, you shared about two other things that are sustaining. One is that you've been journaling since you were very young. Mm -hmm. 
and the other is time outside and reconnecting with the earth. Do you want to share about those as sustaining practices? Yeah. Um, journaling has just always been an aspect of my life, even if it's, you know, when I was in um, very conservative Baptist churches growing up, it was prayer journals, you know. So even going from just journaling about my day to journaling in prayer journals or just journaling poetry. And um, so they've changed a lot over the years, but I have, I have journals back to when I was eight years old. And it's really amazing to look back and read my own words and the ways that I've grown and the ways that I have grieved throughout my life. Um, It's so beautiful to me because a lot of times my poetry is born in those spaces when I do go outside. Um, It's just, it just naturally happens, you know, when you take the time to stop and listen to the trees or listen to the water or just pay attention going on mindful walks, you know, where we're, we're embodying care by connecting back with the land that has always led me to write poetry. I think it's just a connection in me, a tether that, um, even beyond journaling, that poetry just comes to me in those spaces. So having a journal, having a, you know, a pen and, and paper to take with me has always been really special. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, when we write books, we get away from that a bit because so much has to be on computers. So I think there's something really special about just grabbing a journal and a pen and not having the laptop or not having technology with us. And, forcing ourselves to engage in, in that slower act of writing, um, on paper is, um, can be really meaningful as well. What do you hope readers get out of this book? You know, I get asked, um, part of the marketing process, uh, the publicity process of being an author is getting asked, you know, who is the audience of your book? And I write about this in my new book that, um, I, I always just really want to write human beings, that human beings are the, um, the audience of my book. And of course they want something more specific than that. And I understand. So, um, I always change it to fit, you know, a more narrowed audience, but I really truly believe that just no matter what our stories are, we can hold space for one another. I think we don't always do it. I think a lot of times we haven't done it, but I, I want my book to be a book that holds space for others. Now that may be a space where, I write something that's really hard for the reader to read. Maybe it's a truth about America or about colonization that is really difficult to read. But I hope that people, especially people from marginalized identities or people groups can read my words and feel a little bit more at home and can feel like they're not alone. I think that that's really important and, and that people read my words and they just, just take a deep breath and realize that, embodiment is something we can work toward or healing is something we can work toward even in the the small moments of our everyday life. I hope that my readers feel that in these pages and feel like they can really bring this book into their everyday lives with kindness and care as they tell the truth, as they do the work. You quote a lot of different authors, activists, and thinkers in this book. Are there a few of those you'd like to tell us about specifically and what their work means to you? Yeah. Um, I quote, um, so many books (laughs) in this book. Um, and I do that on purpose. I, 
I always hope that when people read my books that they don't stop with my book. You know, the whole point of being an author, I believe, is that we become part of this beautiful network, this beautiful community where we're we're pushing readers to each other's books, you know? And so there were so many books that I quoted. Um, I quoted a book called Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And this book was written years ago, but it is such a beautiful book of stories and um, talking about this uh, wild woman archetype and the ideas of stories and myths that we carry it was really, it's a really beautiful book and I encourage people to read it. Um, another one that I love is called Welcome Home. It's a guide guide to building a home in ourselves by Nadwa Zabian. And she is a gorgeous writer. And I, um, you know, this book is about how we build a room of self-love inside of ourselves instead of rooms of self-hate. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, there's another one called This Here Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley. And um, is just a really beautiful book about embodiment and blackness and um, how we find space in ourselves and in this world for ritual, for care. And then one other one that, that I really love is called The Wisdom of Your Body by Dr. Hilary McBride and talks a lot about trauma and embodiment and how we live in our bodies, you know, how we come to terms and love our bodies and learn to have conversations with our bodies. So those are those are a few and and those are kind of quoted throughout the book. Again, I I tie everything together, you know, that care for ourselves has to lead to care for others and it has to lead to care for mother earth and when we care for the earth, we learn better to care for ourselves. Like it's all connected, it is all cyclical and intertwined and many of the books that I read to write this book are the same. They overlap in so many beautiful ways and and I think that I hope that encourages readers to to grab grab their books as well, read them alongside mine, alongside each other. At the end of the book, you talk about lifelong resistance, and you tell us that we were made for this and that you believe in us. Would you like to share one more poem with us before our time is up today? Yeah, I'd love to. I'll read the poem from that last section of the book. Um, So this is from part four, The Integral Realm. This is the poem that goes alongside this realm. To the tender call of letting go, I give not an answer but a breath, a steady in and out to admit and accept that all that is required here is presence and not sureness. To the tender call of falling, I close my eyes and open my hands, palms up, thoughts spanning the fullness of living and breathing the depths of everything that lives and loves. To the tender call of believing, I claim not ideology, but thisness, the presence and heartbeat of body, mind, and spirit that always seek. And to the tender call of embracing, I simply abandon, strip bare, forsake, so that in all that is left, I am known and fully held in what I do not know that the letting go, the falling, the believing, the embracing is in itself all that life gives. From the sunrise to the sunset of every created day, every created moment, every created opportunity, a glimpse of presence and eternity embodied in this body, embodied in love. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? 
I hope that you will, um, again, not stop with me. (laughs) If you read my book, I hope that you love it. And I hope that it leads you to more indigenous authors. I think that there are so many of us writing such beautiful works of wisdom. And a lot of times our work is just not talked about. It's not talked about um, on podcasts or in the news, in the media. We don't often make book lists and things like that. And I, I hope that when people listen to me and hear my stories, that, that it sparks an interest and it sparks um, a, a want for more solidarity with Indigenous authors. And I hope that it leads you to look up some books by Indigenous authors and to buy their books and to support their work, because I, I don't want it to end with me. We have such rich wisdom and histories and cultures all over the world. And so I hope that that people will invest in that, invest in indigenous authors and and the wisdom and the stories that they have to tell. You tell us in the book that you were working on this during the pandemic, and you mentioned earlier that the book before it came out in 2020. Did that have an effect on you as far as the topic or the wisdom that lands with you now? Yeah, it definitely did. Yeah, I think releasing my second book during the height of the pandemic was really difficult, of course, because, you know, speaking events were canceled. I didn't have a book tour. You know, some of those like those monumental moments I didn't have with my second book. It still reached people and there were still some really beautiful moments. Um, But I needed to move into my next project. I think I, I really needed to step into what was next. And so in living resistance, uh, there were definitely a few days that I had to go to a nearby hotel and lock myself in a room and just write (laughs) because the, that just the overwhelm of everything, you know, we can feel each other's presence. We can feel the, the individual and the collective grieving that we're all still going through. And, and it makes it hard sometimes to write and to focus. And I even have an essay in the book about not being able to focus and write. And I, I put it in the book just because I, I wanted to remind people that even writing and writing during these times is not always easy, but we have to just do it anyway. You know, we have to just show up how we can. We take breaks when we need to. We sometimes go lock ourselves in a hotel room and, and write as, as much as we can in a day. Um, there are moments like that, that we need and, it was difficult, but it also kept me moving forward. It kept me dreaming ahead of what could be. There's so many incredible artists and creators right now who are creating in the midst of, of pandemics or in the midst of, of these painful things that are happening in our country and the world. And I find so much hope in them that they're still doing this even when it's hard. What do you hope listeners will take away? Um, just to continue on this lifelong journey, I think that, um, to remind ourselves that it is lifelong, that we don't have to rush, but that we get to engage in really beautiful relationships. Um, I'm reminded of this often when I do spend time with a friend, someone who is, is in their own life and in their own way, doing the same work that I am. There's so many of us who are doing that. And I encourage people to find, find their people, to find the others who are, are doing the work and also just trying to care for themselves and each other. 
Thank you so much for being here today, Caitlin Curtis, and sharing with us from your book, Living Resistance, an Indigenous vision for seeking wholeness every day. And thank you to our audience. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.